Hey humans out there, I need your help. Humans Now and Then is in the running for a People's Choice Podcast Award under the Society category. If you love Humans Now and Then, please vote at podcastawards.com. That's podcastawards.com. Also, follow Humans Now and Then on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to be one of the first to learn more about the upcoming Season 2. I'll be sharing some exciting announcements soon, and you do not want to miss it. Now, let's jump into Episode 21. Having a vision for the future is important, but having the ability to effectively communicate that vision is essential in making it a reality. In this episode of Humans Now and Then, I speak to Megan Dodder, the founder and CEO of Portico PR, about the importance of effective communication, how people can improve their ability to communicate effectively, and how to bring real value to your audience. That's why I say, like, are you making them smarter? Do you have the right amount of information for this audience at this moment in time? Because if it doesn't answer that criteria, if it doesn't fit, then you're probably overwhelming them. And But if you can make them smarter, help them solve a problem, they will come back to you in a different setting for more help. And that's how you build your relation, build your reputation and build those relationships over time. Megan is a communications expert with years of experience, and her company Portico PR makes it easier to build and deliver great presentations so that ideas and careers can move forward. So, ready to learn more about how to improve your ability to communicate effectively? Let's discuss. I'm Rebecca Scott, and this is Humans Now and Then. Megan Dodder, thanks for joining me. It's great to be here. Thank you, Rebecca. So why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about Megan? Sure. My name is Megan Dodder. I started a company back in about 2013, focused exclusively on helping people with presentations. And on one level, this might seem like a natural progression. I've been in communication for most of my career. I worked in PR agencies and I was head of communications at a global Fortune 200 company. But when I caught up with some of my colleagues from those PR agencies in New York and DC and, and colleagues in-house, and I tell them what I'm doing, at first there was an awkward pause uh, because the reality was I was not very good at presentations. I felt like anytime I opened up a PowerPoint file or tried to match a, an idea in spoken form to a multimedia setting, my mind just hit the brakes. And this was incredibly frustrating because I loved everything else about communication. I loved coming up with messages, helping people, especially technical experts, come up with an idea and translate it to others and, and get them to lead change and just, just saw the change they could have. And I, I really struggle with presentations. And so as part of a personal journey, I sought to get better at presentations and figured out why are they so difficult. And so I started reading books. I would go to workshops across the country. It, it became somewhat of a, a obsession. And uh, what started out as a hobby has now become a, I would say, more than a career. Um, it's like giving people professional makeovers. So we do workshops, we do training, we have coaching, and we do graphic design. So we, we pull everything together. That's awesome. So I know that we had a conversation. It was a great conversation a couple of weeks ago. 
And you mentioned a story that really sent you on your current journey with your company. And it was really compelling because it really spoke to the power of effective communications. So I would love for you to share that story about the fundraising event, where that really kind of got you down your current journey with your company. Yes, I think you're referring to uh, Scott Schenkelberg. He is he was my first client, whether he knew it or not. Uh, he's the CEO of Miriam's Kitchen. It's a nonprofit in D.C. that is focused on helping end chronic and veterans homelessness. And I had been a volunteer for Miriam's Kitchen for several years, primarily helping them with their annual gala and the communication to support it. So that might be press releases or social media or programs. And throughout those those successive galas, you know, you'd have about 800 people in this beautiful venue in, in downtown DC. And Scott did not enjoy the presentation aspect of it so much so that he and the board and, and his chief development office were thinking, maybe we should have like show a video of one of the guests or have a, a board member speak. And it was about that time when I was going on that journey of figuring out why your presentation is so difficult and what can we do about it, that I was asking a couple of my friends and, and family. And then I asked Scott, I was like, well, if you have a presentation coming up, why don't we work on this together? So this year for the gala, instead of working on social media, why don't we work on this presentation? And if it doesn't go well, it seems like you have license never to do this presentation again. But if it does, you know, it, it, it's a new skill that you can work on. And so Scott agreed, and I think he thought he had signed up for, you know, one or two coaching sessions. And I kept on showing up at his office day after day and week after week, because what I found was that you can have all of the best practices and a lot of insight on how adults learn, how to change their mind, how to get them to act. There's psychology, there's graphic design, there's all sorts of things that go into it. But having that knowledge and then trying to apply it to a team when they're in transition is the is the most difficult part about putting a presentation together. And so at that time, Miriam's Kitchen was transitioning from being what was perceived as a soup kitchen. They provide these amazing, almost home-cooked meals every day. And over time, their guests would trust them and they would build relationships so that then the social workers who were in the dining room and the therapist would work with them to help transition them to get into long-term housing and, and work with other agencies and nonprofits across the city. It's an amazing success story. And we can look at that now and see it as a success story. But at the time, it was a it was an existential discussion the organization was having. And so it wasn't a matter of how do we make the most of the seven minutes when everyone was on board with what the strategy was and how the organization saw itself. It was how do you create a great communication piece and manage all of the politics and negotiations and strong emotions around that. And so Scott put his heart into it. He was he likened our sessions to looking forward to it as if he were going to a really tough personal trainer that he didn't look forward to it in the morning, but he was really happy with the results. And and sure enough, he got up there that night and he he just he owned the room like no one I've ever seen before or since. And and so when years passed, he felt like he was competing with side conversations. And you know what it's like when there's a silent auction going on and there's chatter, you could hear a pin drop. And the, the audience was so moved by what he was saying that 
people started to tear up. And an amazing thing happens when people tear up and get emotional about a cause is they're more likely to do a favor if you ask of them. There's this whole trajectory of what happens when you produce the, the love and bonding hormone. And so in that giving moment, right after he gave a speech, there's this huge screen that has the numbers going up and up and up. And I think they raised something more like 43% more money in that giving moment than they had in the year past. And it was seeing that reaction, seeing how excited his team was for him, like just seeing him like bask in the glow of owning the room in a way that he never had before. And then also getting text messages from board members saying, what did you do with Scott? This is fantastic. Like this is, this is, we always, we've seen, and now everyone sees how amazing he is. And that was my moment. I was like, this is not just a hobby. This is something that has a financial value that I can point to return investment. And so maybe this is what I decide to focus my entire professional life on. Yeah, that's definitely a very powerful example of the importance of human communication, uh, but also human connection, not even just in moments of influence, but really when you're trying to convey something that's emotionally powerful. I'm imagining that he also had a very close connection, of course, to the cause that he was championing that I'm sure contributed to his ability to be successful in communicating so passionately. Mm-hmm. That is that is both the strongest asset a speaker has and also the thing that holds them back the most. Um, and that's where having someone as an outsider can come in to help tap into what is that passion? Why are you doing this? You could be doing anything else in the world. Why this cause? And so getting people to open up and be authentic, as they say, in a way about talking about is the one part of it. The other part of that, and, and that's the weakness that a lot of people have when they're so immersed in an issue or a topic is, you know, I, I would have those hard conversations. Like you're going to have people who were brought in by a coworker or brought in by their spouse and they don't know what Miriam's Kitchen is. And maybe when they walk past someone who's homeless, they don't understand and they think, gosh, if I lost my job, I'd have a plan that wouldn't happen to me or where's their family. And so, or thinking, you know, there's other causes out there that people might feel more sympathetic to. So by thinking about those audience and their different perspectives and acknowledging those doubts helped him have a much more candid discussion in just seven minutes. And that ability to to balance the tapping into your passion, but also I get it. This is important to me. And this is why this, you might have skepticism that puts your audience in a better position to listen and then move them from point A to B on an issue. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really interesting. And I've heard this from people before. I mean, I do a lot of public speaking and I've had people tell me like, how can you do that? How can you get in front of people and deliver a message? And that always comes with this kind of underlying assumption that people can't learn how to communicate effectively or that they just need, they don't have that natural ability. So what would be the thing that you would tell Uh, any listeners that feel like they don't have that natural ability to influence in the way that you're speaking about? We all, it's the nice thing. It's, it's, I liken it to becoming a, uh, a distance runner. You don't have to have a lot of natural ability, um, but you have to go out there and practice every day if you can, or practice whenever you can. And we all have the ability to present better and communicate more effectively. When it becomes more difficult is when it becomes so much easier to communicate in a one directional way. So, which means it's easier to text, it's easier to hop on Slack or 
send an email and this can erode our listening skills. We're not reading the voice. We're not seeing the body language. And so the best way to get better is to practice and be more comfortable with what for many people can feel like awkward pregnant pauses. So it's asking a question and then sitting in silence while the person you're talking to formulates a thoughtful response and not feeling like you have to jump in and keep talking. So it, it's practice. And it's it's one of the areas that, you know, when we think about trends of the future, it concerns me quite a bit. Um, because when we do presentation workshops, for example, one of the things that we say is presentations are like conversations. So it's an exchange of an idea go in expecting to learn something from your audience. So this can take away the pressure as a speaker of thinking, oh my gosh, I have to know the exact right answer to every single answer. There's a difference between being prepared and feeling like you have to be perfection. No one wants perfection. Frankly, people don't like perfection. And for the most part, you can see the room relax. And it's like, oh, a presentation, I can do that. Like I, I can converse with someone. And it might be, this might be too stereotypical of, of a generational trend that we're seeing, but with the younger and younger professionals in the workforce, there's almost a look of panic that comes across their face because it's, I don't want to talk. And so with some of the individuals that we've coached one-on-one, the biggest return on investment for them hasn't been in working on their slides or you know power poses or thinking about executive presence. It's getting comfortable with when they go to Home Depot, they're going to go ahead and, and go up to a sales associate and ask for directions or, or insights, or they're going to make a phone call and they're going to walk. <laughs> it's, t- it's tough to say this now in this world, so we might want to this, but they're going to pick up the phone and have a conversation about things that otherwise it's so easy to use in, in text or IM or use, use technology to try to accomplish the same goal. Yeah, and there has been a lot of research around um, how technology in the past several years has impacted our ability to communicate with one another effectively, be comfortable with those communications, and being okay with making minor mistakes in those communications as well, especially for younger generations. Mm -hmm. So I think that um, there's also a great book too, and I've mentioned this on previous episodes, and I I do this because I think it's a really important topic to talk about is that impact. And it was a book called by uh, Sherry Turkle. It's called Reclaiming Conversation. And she brings up a lot of great data and information and research around that specific topic about how technology is impacting our ability to communicate going forward. And I also wonder too, when I think about technology and how it's impact and our ability to communicate, there will become a, a more and more of a reduction in our need for getting certain things from one another that would drive communication in the past. So for instance, we've already experienced this now where we talk to our Google Home or our Alexa, if we ask it a question or if we want to order something, we don't have to make a phone call. We don't even have to go to the store. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you envision kind of like even just those little, you know, reductions in our communications? How do you feel like that might impact our ability to, you know, or influence our ability to, to communicate with one another moving forward? You know, the Alexa example, it, it, it's funny the other day. We, we've started to do that more and more to build grocery lists or to ask questions. So even if we used to, um, my sister and I used to joke that, well, I used to joke whenever she had a trivia question, she would call me. And so I could get a call randomly on a Saturday night and it would be like 
you know, what country or who is the person in that? And, you know, I haven't gotten those calls for years, even though I talk to every day because, you know, there's the internet. But in, in thinking of how we're increasingly relying on the, the smart apps, and, the, and I even hesitate to say Alexa, because every time I say it, I feel like she's going to start recording it. <laughs> uh, what I found is um, my husband will be like, wait, were you, were you talking to me? And so we're not as tuned in and we're not as present because we're not sure if someone's talking to an app, or if they're directing it to themselves, or if they're laughing at something on the phone. And so it's something to be mindful for. On the one hand, you know, I've got a two-year-old, so anything that helps me figure out a, a recipe measurement or, you know, can do a story time and help entertain her while I'm trying to multitask, it's a great extra resource to have. Mommy's little helper, I guess. But it, I'm also aware of the fact that it it's another excuse for us to be less present in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, because I would like to think that whenever my husband speaks or I speak, we automatically like focus and, and turn our attention to them. But it is just something to be mindful of those little moments that start to take away from how present we are in a given moment. And I I see a lot of that now. And I just had a conversation with someone about this, about, you know, when we think about conference calls and the default is to be for everyone to be on mute because of audio. And we have large groups that can be very distracting if there's a lot of background noise. And it makes me sad and a, a little bit sad and a little bit concerned because it's already a way to not show up and be fully present if you're joining virtually. And I say this when there was more of an option when you could say, okay, there's going to be a meeting, you can be there. Do we let people call in? Because more often than not, the people that are calling in aren't as invested and they're not reading that body language. And so when everyone has to be virtually, or if that's going to be the default rather than the norm now, and then the add-on is default to be on mute it takes an extra level of, of courage, of focus, of vulnerability, of willing to be vulnerable to take yourself off of mute and then say something and communicate and put something out there that you can't read the body language or get the signals on how well it was received that much more. Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting point. And I think that more of us are trying to wade through, you know, virtual communications a little bit more than we had in the past, simply because, of course, with more isolation and more people staying at home, mm-hmm. you know, we're using more virtual tools. And not that we hadn't in the past, um, but now that we're using them more extensively, I've heard people say that they're learning, you know, different ways to communicate, seeing people on a screen versus seeing people in person. There's definitely a difference there, right? Being in person, you know, in front of somebody, like if we were in the same room, uh, we probably would have a different level of rapport and maybe a different type of conversation than we have um, like we're having today. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I try to challenge people through through my podcast here is to help shape the future. So let's say we had a listener that has something they're passionate about, but don't know how to get involved. Um, what? How can effective communications help them uh, convey that message in a way to help them be a part of a solution? That's such a great question because it's you know, now more than ever, I think people are thinking a bit more about meaning and, and maybe it's, it's also at certain times of your life, you, you think more about, okay, what am I about? Am I achieving this through work? Is it something outside of work? And so whether it is in the professional setting, personal, the best way to get started is to see what's being done already. Um, and so whether that is figuring out how much time you want to spend researching and 
talking to people and building on your own base of knowledge. And it's almost as if you're doing, um, gosh, back in grad school, we called them literature reviews. I was such a dork. Um, I loved this. I would read what every academic or expert said on a specific issue and then do a survey of it or you know, reading the New York Times book review. And doing a simplified version of that on a cause that you feel passionately about and, and recognizing, okay, who are the people that follow it the most? And maybe do something a little bit more diverse than Twitter. Twitter has its, has its benefits, but certainly more long form sources of media can be helpful. But see who's involved in it, what their position is, a little bit more of the history. And then when you have that base of knowledge, start networking and find out how you can volunteer, how you can be of help, find out what's missing in that conversation. Because if you have some insight and it's evident to someone that you've done your homework, you're going to have a more informed conversation. And so for this same kind of level of expectation of what we define of being a great presentation, it's the same thing that defines being a great networker or being great about advancing your cause. And that is was, did you make the person that you were talking to a little bit smarter about something? So even if you're talking to someone who's been working on an issue that is near and dear to your heart, let's say for me, it is homelessness. I grew up outside of DC. My parents would take us into the city to go to the National Cathedral and the Smithsonian Museums on the weekends. And at the time, that's when homelessness was becoming a huge issue in, in DC. And so that has been an issue that's always been near and dear to my heart. I'm pretty sure that if I had shown up on Scott's, you know, proverbial doorstep at Miriam's kitchen and said, Hey, I'm going to make you a better presenter without knowing more about the organization and what they were doing, that would affect my credibility. So it's thinking about how can you become incrementally smarter on a topic and not only see what can the person you're interviewing about how you can help, how they can help you but what are some insight and gifts and experience that you have that you can share with them so that you both are a bit richer from the exchange? Yeah. And I, I like that theme, thinking about the value of conversation, especially from, from the perspective of a two-way conversation. And you had mentioned it earlier, like when you're speaking to people, the importance of thinking about that as a conversation. And I, I'm really glad you said that because it's often how I explain to people how I approach public speaking. Uh, that I think of it as a conversation. It's me having a conversation with how, how many, however many people are in the room. It could be five people. It could be 200. Uh, but I think it's an interesting way of thinking about it in relation to value. Mm -hmm. So if you think about what you're not only putting into the conversation, but what you're getting out of it, it is definitely a different level of conversation, but it's also a different level of connection uh, with those people you're communicating with. Absolutely. And I, I think about the times that I've been the most anxious about presenting. And it when I was, because remember, I was not a good presenter back in the day at all. I had slides that were atrocious. They were filled with, you know, text. They were all bullets. And I read from them. I rambled. And so even though I love presenting now and I have this whole methodology, almost like a color by numbers, an easy button to do presentations, there are still times when it'll be the night before I present or maybe two weeks and it's a new group and I'll look at the bios of the people. And I'll, I remember one time in particular, I thought, what am I going to possibly share with these people? They were all postdocs in healthcare. And so they were studying 
cancer treatments at the Mayo Clinic and Harvard and Stanford and MIT. And it was so overwhelming. And I've done other work with Stanton Foundation where they're from you know, the top universities in the world. And then you remember like, this isn't about being the smartest person in the room. This is about helping them solve a particular problem. And I say this in pretty much every workshop. And if I don't, I, I apologize. And I will go back and tell other people pretty much in every workshop, I get a question that I don't know the answer to. And I will let the audience know that as a way of saying, and I'll remind them when someone asks a question, I'll say, okay, I don't know the answer to that right now, but I'm going to figure that out. And I'm going to email it to you, or I'm going to put a blog post or somehow I'm going to communicate it to you. And then we have that reality check of, okay, I didn't know that answer to this question. Are you now going to discount everything that I've shared with you in the past, whether it's a half an hour, you know, or a, a half day workshop or a full day. And there's this laugh of like, no, of course not. And so it's a reminder of conversations aren't the test. Like for most of us, school is over. We don't have to go through that again. It's not about being the smartest person in the room. It's about being able to understand where your audience is coming from, what they're facing, and also to realize that you know, maybe you're wrong, or maybe there's part of your messaging or part of your argument that isn't where it needs to be and better to find that out. In fact, there was a, a woman who came up to me at the break at that one event that I was, I was mentioning with all of the brilliant medical researchers. And she said, I'm kind of surprised no one's asked this question because in, in the forum, because we've all been talking about it. So, but what happens if you're presenting your research to someone and there's someone in the room who is more of an expert than you are. And so I, I flat out said, I was like, so you're not the smartest person in the room. And I think I was also exhausted. I was like, wow, that sounded a little you know, curt. And she laughed and she just had this wave of relief over her. And I said, if you, if you and another foremost expert on this one particular type of helping find a cure for melanoma are discussing and comparing your research, that's the bigger benefit for the world, that you all are exchanging ideas and learning from one another. This is not a contest. And so for a lot of people that, with whom we work, who tend to be type A on caffeine and are very driven and can be competitive, it's a reminder of we're in this together. And so we can learn from one another. We can acknowledge where maybe we were wrong and maybe we can consider alter, alternate viewpoints. And that's ultimately how you can move things ahead. In fact, um, I will share a story of my transition to in-house communication. When I worked for a PR agency, and I think this is true for a lot of people who are on the you know, agency firm side, I would always wonder, like, why does it take them so long to review materials? Like, What are they doing in-house that takes so long? And then I went in-house myself <laughs> and realized how difficult it was. I think it was the first person who did communications in this company that had been around for 30 years. And I would go in at, I was at my desk before 7 a.m. And I was there till usually seven right at night, ate my lunch at my desk and worked really, really hard. And I felt like I was fighting a battle of this is why you should communicate things. When to me, I had all the technical skills and I could do the message points. Whereas my colleague who was head of investor relations would go out for coffee. He would have lunch with people from all over the company every day. And I used to think like, how, could, how does he have time to do that? Because I know he has as much work as I do. And then over time, I realized his work was much better than mine ultimately, because he was taking his ideas and he wasn't just going out for coffee. 
he was running them by his friends or making friends and building relationships across different parts of the company through those lunches and coffees and the happy hours and perhaps the golf golfing on the weekend as well. And so it was a lesson for me. It's one of the biggest pieces of advice that I, I give to especially young women coming up through the workforce. It's get outside of the office and find out it's on you to make your case about why you're advocating for a certain point of change. And in my case, it was why we should be communicating more. It also gives you opportunity to learn more about their work. So when you go into those meetings and those higher stakes settings, you have that relationship to build on. There's that trust, there's that understanding. So it was a meandering way of um, <laughs> getting to that point about the importance of conversations. Yeah. There's so much value in that. And I think this is something a lot of people struggle with in organizations, especially when they need or have the opportunity to present to people who are executives, for instance. Mm -hmm. There is definitely an intimidation factor uh, involved with that. But if you can view those executives or whoever they might be, whether they're uh, people at Harvard or you know people who have very big credentials, if you think about them as people, empathize with them as people. And also understand, I, have a, I think it's almost like you need a mutual understanding that uh, we're all flawed, we're, we're not perfect, and it's okay to make mistakes. And I, I hope, or I feel that, that shift is starting to happen a little bit more where people are more tolerant of the mistakes of other people. Mm -hmm. And in fact, in, in those cultures where there is more of that, less tolerance for healthy exchange, or I will say there's more of a bullying environment where even from the way the room is set up and how they have meetings and the pushback and how things can be personal in the commentary, there are things you can do to help leadership. You can be like a reflection of like, hey, this is what's going on. This is what we're observing. This is what you're hearing from your, we're hearing from your team. At a certain point, it has not been surprising to me that those organizations who have that level of just anxiety and stress to the point of bullying, those have been the companies who, where the shareholder value ultimately, I mean, the share price declines, there's change in leadership, there's downsizing. It's, it's, it's a canary in a coal mine in a way. So if you are in an environment where even if you're raising those things, those awareness of, hey, people are getting interrupted in a way, they're being shushed, they don't feel like they can talk and communicate, those are red flags for a issues that are probably way beyond anything that you control, you can control. So it's not you, it's the, it's the organization. <laughs> right. I feel like, you know, if we had this conversation 10 years ago, I think there'd be less people that would agree with that statement. I'm 100% on board <laughs> with what you're saying. And, and I've experienced that and seen it. And there's tons, luckily, there's tons of research now to kind of back that up to yes. the importance of being able to bring yourself to work the topic of psychological safety, mm -hmm. where I can walk into my work environment and be exactly who I am and feel comfortable with that, that there's not going to be a backlash for, for who I am. Exactly. Um, and I feel like that's a really important thing to have. Psychological, let's talk about that for a second. Psychological safety, walking into any room and being able to effectively communicate because you feel safe in that environment. Gosh, I have so many thoughts on this because oh, I'd automatically think of our, there's what you can control and what is out of your control. And when I think of things like the, the first thing that popped my mind was the imposter syndrome, mm, yeah. um, which is 
you know, when you think that the rest of the world is going to figure out that you're not as smart or as qualified as they think you are. And I was explaining this to my now husband when we were dating. And he was like, I, I don't understand. Was like, why would you be worried about making a mistake or like mistakes happen? And he had been in the Air Force for 26 years. And he said, when we were in flight training school and when he trained pilots, when you made a mistake, there was like a two-hour meeting and pe- all people around the table would grill you for what happened and why. Mm. And he said it wasn't personal. They were trying to figure out how do they improve the flight training process or the plane. or And I just said that sounds like absolute terror to me. Like I, I cannot imagine having a mistake picked apart for two hours. And it was shocking to see that and encouraging to see that he can have such a different way of thinking about mistakes. So I say that because the imposter syndrome comes up quite a bit in our one-on-one coaching and workshops. It comes up just as much for men as women, um, which I think is, is surprising for people. There's research that also bears that out. That's certainly our team's experience with it. And I bring that up because when you walk into a room to present, very few people feel no anxiety whatsoever. And in fact, you want the right amount of nervousness and excitement because you can channel that and and your colleagues can pick up on that. Our our emotions are infectious. But if we don't feel safe and don't feel, and we feel under threatened, we want to figure out why is that happening? And so A, do we have a realistic expectation of what success looks like in that, in this meeting? And so that's why I say like, are you making them smarter? Do you have the right amount of information for this audience at this moment in time? Because if it doesn't answer that criteria, if it doesn't fit, then you're probably overwhelming them. And, but if you can make them smarter, help them solve a problem they will come back to you in a different setting for more help. And that's how you build your relation, build your reputation and build those relationships over time. And if you can pair it back to those things, it takes away things like I have to be flawless in my execution. I can't have any likes or ums. Like, of, of course, I'm going to encourage you to rehearse aloud a few times, especially your opening and your closing. So you have that comfort. It can be conversational. But it's getting down to that fundamental, why do they want to hear from me? Or why do I need from them? And what does that Venn diagram look like? If you can work on any of that other distracting noise that that affects our imposter syndrome, whether it's, am I smart enough? Am I wearing the right outfit? Did I use the right words? All of those things, those are things that we do to self-soothe and help ourselves feel more comfortable in the moment. And that shows up in our body language. It shows up in how we ask questions. We might put ourselves down and make qualifying statements. And if you're that anxious, for the most part, your colleagues or your your prospective client, they're going to be so concerned about how you feel that they're going to worry about making you feel better versus listening to your ideas. And so you think about how valuable it is to have that target-rich audience in a room You don't want them to worry about helping you feel better. You want them to be inspired. You want to gently challenge them on an issue. So when I think about that psychological safety, it's how can I get myself in the best mindset to be on, have that presentation persona for 15 minutes, a half an hour, an hour. Afterwards, I can go home. I can bake brownies. I can zone out with HGTV. I can do whatever self-care I need to do, but I'm not going to put that on my audience. Um, And I think it's, it's easier to see 
your audience as safe and as human, if you can think through who's in the room, what challenges are they facing? What do they know about this topic? There's a a book on office politics. I want to say it's something like political savvy and it's by Professor Joe DeLuca. And he has a recommendation that you shouldn't have a meeting unless you know that 51%, he calls it the 51% rule, that over half the people there either support or care about your idea. And it's that work that you do before a meeting and before a presentation to get to know the people. So if you are not on a first name basis with the CEO or CFO, it's not going to be realistic to call them up and say, hey, we've got a meeting next week. I want to make sure this is a good use of your time. What concerns you? But chances are you can have that relationship with their chief of staff or someone else on their team. So it's thinking about how do you build out your network of all of those people in power and get a better idea of, do they care about this issue? How does it relate to their biggest priority? What's their history on it? What's their skeptic- What's their skepticism? And so going through those types of questions, and we have a whole process that we have people go through to prepare for each of these presentations, that gives you the confidence of, okay, I have messages that I know are going to resonate, or I know that our CFO she's really skeptical about this one technology. And so I'm going to address that right out of the gate. So I know that she knows I understand her perspective. Um, Those are the things that are under your control about researching your audience, about setting a realistic bar for success for yourself. Um, If you've done those two things, if you've practiced aloud, if you look for opportunities to keep on practicing your communication, it becomes easier in those moments because I won't promise you that every meeting and presentation will be rainbows and unicorns and and be fantastic. Most of them will be, but chances are you're still going to have an audience where someone's having a bad day or, you know, you have no idea what's going on in their life where they might not be as open-minded, supportive and collaborative But when those moments do occur, it doesn't feel as personal because you know that you've succeeded and performed well in so many other environments that you can step back and think, okay, how can I evaluate how I did? Which is something we encourage people to do, not the day after a presentation, a big one, but maybe within the the next week or so to once you've had time to recover to think, what could I have done better? What did I do well? What do I want to work on the next time? Is there something I can repair in the moment? And it becomes less personal. It's almost like you're holding it out from yourself and it becomes more about an issue, an idea that you're trying to advance. It's not about their judgment of you as a person. Yeah. And I'm really glad you brought that up because one of the things I think that I always struggled with um, in my communications journey, I suppose, are those moments when I bombed and just really just didn't, wasn't at my best. And it can be very difficult to recover from those types of failures um, and then just accept the fact that we're not perfect, but kind of go back to your point of what can we learn from that experience um, and how can we carry that forward to, to do better next time? Mm-hmm. Those bombing moments, and we've all had them, are learning opportunities. <laughs> yes. Yeah, they can be powerful learning opportunities. They can. And, and most, most of the professional speakers out there and people who seem super comfortable now most of us have had at least one of those experiences. It's a big corrective aha moment of, I mean, for me, I was like, either I'm going to hire someone on my team to do presentations or I'm going to figure this out. That's how bad it was. 
<laughs> yeah, I think it's one of those things. I, I think I had my moment when I became, um, I would say, a little bit overconfident. And I think we start to learn you do enough speaking in front of different audiences. You start to understand that the audience in the room today is not the same as the audience in the room tomorrow, which means your presentation will be fundamentally different. Your experience will be fundamentally different. Before I learned that, I approached the next audience in the same way I approached the first audience and didn't get the same uh, reaction. In fact, I got a very opposite reaction because I didn't take into account the the people in the room and the perspectives that they were bringing. And uh, that was a hard lesson for me, but uh, I had to brush myself off and, and try again next time. But it was also a very important lesson that I took out of that. Mm -hmm. I had a, a client in a workshop this past December who said, and it's exactly that. He said, you know, I gave the exact same presentation. And the first time it was amazing. I had people lined up to buy my book afterwards. And the next time people couldn't get out of the room fast enough. And I'm like, <laughs> well, what changed there? And she was like, oh, the audience. Right. And it, 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 it's true. It's because people want that feeling like you get them. And so whatever it is that you can do to understand the audience a bit more and find that connection and adapt. I mean, I've, I've used a core of my curriculum for seven years now, and it's changed so much based on the audience or what happens year to year that, you know, it was a, a great and valuable workshop in 2013. I don't know how much of that it's still based on this is the science of what works and here are stories of how it's worked with our clients, but it evolves just as your audience does. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's a good way to think about it too, is our own evolution, but the, the realization too, that everyone around us is, is experiencing their own evolution. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I know you, earlier in the conversation, you spoke a little bit about your concerns for the future. What things make you optimistic about the future? It's a tough question right now. <laughs> um, what makes me optimistic is we have been so upended by what's going on right now. And I don't want to make this too specific to COVID-19, the pandemic, but it's hard not to have that mindset right now. I know that we've, my husband and I both are trying to work full time. I have three stepsons and we have a two-year-old daughter and it's, we're worried about our parents. I mean, there's, there's, there's so many levels of things that we're dealing with right now. And when I thought about um, my own business and, you know, <laughs> kind of realized like, wow, 2020 was an amazing year. And then it's not, um, you, you take those times to recover. And I, when I think about what I'm optimistic for with work-life balance, and specifically with presentations and meetings and not only workplace communication, but interpersonal, I'm more confident that I'm more optimistic that this is going to be a huge forcing function to figure some things out. And, and what do I mean by that? So one of the biggest challenges that we see with teams in, in their presentations and meetings is we spend so much time in meetings and presentations and preparing for them. It's how we communicate. And yet we don't, a lot of teams don't have that vision of what do we want our presentations and meetings to look, sound, and feel like. And so there's this 
kind of guessing game of what the leaders want. And we do most of our collaboration by making edits to PowerPoint slides. And when I compare this to the efficiency of like a Six Sigma engineer and their accuracy and their process and how they can predict how much time things are going to take and what the error rate is going to be, it's like the opposite end of the spectrum in corporate America. And I think there's going to be less tolerance for meandering meetings and PowerPoint presentations that are strictly someone's thoughts and they're reading from them. And our recommendation, our recommendation for years has always been, do you really need a meeting? Do you really need a presentation? Because there's plenty of other great ways to communicate. And so what I'm optimistic about now is I hope we hold a higher standard for what it means to gather and what it means to meet and put real estate on someone's calendar when we're trying to manage so many other things in a virtual work environment. Um, So I think I'm optimistic that we're going to meet less with fewer people and there are going to be shorter meetings and we're going to meet and present when there's a specific decision that we have to make. If there's an action that we're trying to get people to say yes or no on something that's going to move forward to truly get the ideas and reactions and insights and analysis in a real time setting, because that's all we're going to have the bandwidth for. Um, I think there's going to be less reliance on PowerPoint as a way to organize our thoughts because people aren't going to have time to go back and forth. I I'm optimistic that we're going to take a more critical look at our ability to write a clear memo. You know, I've been saying this for probably 20 years now. And I remember even, you know, back in the day in New York, we'd get these associates right out of school. And I, I remember asking one to write a memo and she was like, I don't know how to write a memo. <laughs> I was like, you went to one of the top universities in the country. Like, we'll figure this out. We can, we can do this. It's just a way of organizing your ideas and being more meaningful, deliberate, and present about why we have our colleagues together. And so I'm optimistic that when someone asks you, what are you working on as a colleague, you can tie that to what our shared objective and mission and purpose and meaning is. It's not a laundry list of all of my to-do lists. It's not a way for me of getting credit for what I have to do because we're all swimming with way too much information. So I'm optimistic that this is going to be a fortune function that we're going to have to be better about how we design our meetings, how we run them, and how we prepare people to participate. Right. And I don't think anyone would disagree on the point of having less ineffective meetings. <laughs> I have that come up, that topic comes up quite a bit, but I, I really want to thank you for, for this great conversation. Cause I think there's a lot of great, meaningful things people can take out of this to make a real difference, both within their work, but also in life and potentially in their ability to help shape the future. Hopefully. I, I, my hope is that this is this gives some people some ideas and insight and some courage to get out there and practice and get used to being uncomfortable with hearing someone disagree or push or ask more. And because that's the only way we're going to move forward on this. And, and for any issue that is of importance to us in a personal, professional setting. It's a beautiful thought, Megan. So Megan Dodder, thank you so much for joining me. You're very welcome. Thank you, Rebecca.
Megan has a gift for helping people tap into their personal strengths to deliver messages with meaning. She also mentions the importance of finding courage and getting used to the discomfort of disagreement and pushback. And she's right. While many of us work to avoid conflict, respectful conflict is a key aspect to innovation and a way for people to break free of the status quo in order to make a real difference. So, what is it that you have to share with the world? And how will you go about doing that? Will you find the courage to practice presenting to audiences so that you can share your vision for the future? Maybe you'll choose to be a voice against ineffective meetings and demonstrate how to leverage people's time effectively and with purpose. Whatever it is that you'd like to share, do not let fear hold you back. Today is a great day to begin practicing your communication craft. As Megan mentions, much like a marathon runner, the more you work at it, the better you'll become. And as you become better, you'll gain the courage to share your ideas with the world, conquer imposter syndrome, and in turn, help to shape a better future. So go on, go help shape the future. To learn more about Megan Dotter and her company, Portico PR, check out her website at porticopr.com. That's porticopr.com. I am Rebecca Scott, and this has been Humans Now and Then, hosted and produced by Rebecca Scott. Music by Ryan Sullivan, Rebecca Scott, and Victoria Scott. Credits and resources from this episode can be found in the episode notes at humansnowandthen.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you.